Here again is John Hickman. Two trademarks of the Meston script are violence and tragedy, and for a very good reason. John Meston. Well, most stories do end rather tragically and sad, despite the propaganda in the great United States of America. Well, most people, well, they had sad endings, or a great number of them did. Jesus, it was a hard life. Didn't live very long. They, uh, while they lived, it was pretty rough. And the brutality and the violence. You talk about violence these days. Of course, the stuff they put on television is terrible, I think. But uh, the violence in those days was was rampant. Uh, my God, the violence. The poor way of life. You know, no medicine, no sanitation, no, not much of anything. A lot of heat and sand and little water, not much food. It wasn't a great life. It's been romanticized, but fairly well. But, but uh, maybe that's, that answers the question. I don't know. It didn't romanticize it so much. Meston scripts are filled with odd and tragic figures. And one of the best examples is the guitar, first heard in December 1953. It's the story of a not-so-bright guitar-playing ex-soldier named Weed Pindle, who transports himself about the West on an old mule. Pindle, played by Vic Perrin, is bullied by two cowboys in one of the first scenes of the show. Now, what in the world was that fellow? Who? It just came in the door there with... With Tyler and Short. Oh, him, that weed Pendle. He rode in on a mule a couple days ago. Uh, which has the bigger ears? Him or the mule? <laughs> oh, he is funny looking, all right. And he acts peculiar, too. That's a mighty scrawny mule, Pendle. I seen you on him this morning. Pendle here is kind of scrawny yourself, Short. Maybe some beard fat him up a little. I'd like some beer, all right. But I got no money. Why'd you sell that guitar of yours? Sell my guitar? No, I'd never do that. You must have a nickel at least. Last money I had got stole. Now, who dare steal money off a tiger like you, Pendle? I was asleep. I started to wake up, but they kicked me in the head. You call that a head? Looks to me more like your neck just growed out and haired over. <laughs> I ain't very handsome. You sure ain't. Hey, what'd your old lady think of you when she saw you, Pendle? I don't know. She died. Yeah. Laughing, I'll bet. Oh, now, that's <laughs> enough, Tyler. That's too mean. Pendle's a harmless little fella. Ain't nobody talking to you, Chester. Well... Bartender, three beers. You buying, Tyler? I'm proud, too. As the story develops, Tyler and Short ignore Dylan's warnings and continue to torture Pendle. They even mutilate his mule. What do you suppose they've done to him now? Look at his mule, Chester. Well, that's what they've done. Oh, my goodness, Mr. Dillon. He's lost an ear. I thought Yankee would like carrying you with that way short. He thought heard they did. I guess there's just no pleasing some men, Tyler. <laughs> you shouldn't have done that to my mule. Well, it's the marshal again. Did you men do this? Now, Marshal, we ain't done nothing to Pendle. Did they do it, Pendle? I tried to stop him, but Tyler held me. And they gave me my mule's ear, Marshal. Right here. See? Yeah. 
Turn around, both of you. Turn around, I said. Now take their guns, Chester. Yes, sir. Can't do nothing else, Marshal. We didn't hurt Kendall. No. I don't like what you did to his mule. I got him, Mr. Dillon. Now that you can turn around again. I ought to cut an ear off of each of you. But I can't do that. So I'm going to do the next best thing. Now look here, Marshal. Now leave him there, Chester. Wendell, I'm sorry about your mule. He ain't much of a mule anymore. Well, you better go take care of him. And maybe these two will leave you alone now. Poor mule. Tyler and Short reached their sadistic pinnacle when they destroy Pindle's guitar. The next morning, the two cowboys are found murdered behind the long branch. In the closing moments of the show, Dylan talks to bartender Sam Noonan about Pindle's whereabouts the previous evening. Sam? Well, what'll it be, Marshal? Where's weed Pindle, Sam? Oh, I just sent him out back for a bucket of sawdust. What do you want him for? Short and Tyler got their throats cut early this morning. Good. I guess their smashing his guitar was too much for Pendle. That's so. Oh, there he is now. Pendle, come over here. Morning, Marshal. Good morning. Pendle, where was you last night? I don't know. Here, I guess. You don't know. Now, wait a minute, Marshal. Pendle, where was you after they wrecked your guitar? Yeah, I sat in the alley a while, and I come back here. Yeah, that's right. And he was so broke up about his guitar, I didn't want to leave him alone, so I took him up and let him sleep on the floor of my room. Isn't that right, Pendle? Well, go on, tell him now. Sure, Sam. That's right. Are you trying to alibi for him, Sam? I know, Marshal Dillon. But I care about him. Some people care about me. Who, Pendle? He's just talking, Marshal. Who cares about you, Pendle? Tell me. Those men. What men? He means some of the boys that was here when he come back with his busted guitar, Marshal. He just told him how sorry he was, that's all. I see. They liked his music, didn't they? Yes, they did. They liked to hear me play. Who was in here then, Sam? Well, now, Marshal Dillon, you know how it is. I'm busy pouring drinks, and I don't pay no mind to who's here and who ain't. I, I couldn't rightly say it all. Okay, Sam, I guess I can't beat the truth out of you. Oh, now, Marshal Dillon, who cares about Tyler and Short? Dodge is better off without There's him. There's a law against murder, Sam, and it's the same for everybody. And I'll be back later. What are you going to do now, Mr. Dillon? Well, I've done all I can, Chester. The whole town's just plain quit talking. Nobody knows anything. Well... I guess they're all trying to protect Pendle. Yeah, they are. But he didn't do it. Well, who did then? Well, if I could prove who did it, Chester, I'd have him in jail. 
Say, come over here. Well, I declare Mr. Dillon looks to me like he's leaving town. I told him he could go. He looks funnier than ever on that one-eared mule. Yeah. Now, Dodge treated Pendle pretty rough. He sure did. Poor little fellow looks kind of empty like about his guitar, don't he? Well, maybe you'll find another one somewhere. Anyway, they sure like to hear him play in this town. Yeah, a couple of the boys in particular, I guess. Yeah, they liked it just fine. Another Meston trademark was his factual treatment of the plight of the American Indian. He had good reasons for this. Well, as I recall, or I've been told, we were the, I've forgotten, we were about the first show that treated Indians some, as human beings, not just redskins and the only good Indians and dead ones and so on. There a number of shows about that and intermarriage. And of course, the buffalo, yeah, sure. But... I think we, we, the Indians before that, as I remember, that wasn't around much before that. I wasn't even, I never heard radio or anything. They were treated in the old, old way, you know, just Indians, they're our enemy and that kind of thing. I think Gunsmoke was, I've heard, or understand, it was the first show that really changed us somewhat. No, I, the, the white man, the way he treated the Indians, is a national disgrace. It still is. And concentration camps and everything else. Trying to destroy that culture, the way we're doing now. Assimilate the Indians, sure. The Indian can be assimilated, but he can't can't get a drink. Oh, no, it's a horrible thing. No, it's the Indians are no worse than anybody else. Most of the white men out there were not, not nice guys. They're all a bunch of nuts who went west anyway, most of them. When you really get down into it, Jesus Christ, it goes through that. Washington policy against the Indians is to wipe them out, sure. So the poor Indian retaliated a little bit and got a bad name. <laughs> Perhaps one of the better Meston scripts with an Indian theme was Sunday Supplement, broadcast in June 1956. This story concerns two New York writers named Sprig and Bunker who come to Dodge looking for sensational stories that will thrill their Eastern readers. The writers disturb a Pawnee burial ground and steal an Indian totem causing an uprising that is brutally extinguished by the cavalry. Following the massacre, Sprig and Bunker returned to Dodge for the final confrontation with Dillon. Hello, Marshal. Get on, Bunker. You too, Sprig. Now. Well, right. We saw it, Marshal. We saw practically all of it. It was exciting. And with no help from you, either. Oh, it was magnificent. The cavalry really got their own back this time. What are you talking about, Bunker? The Indians. The cavalry practically wiped them out. What? Yesterday, Marshal, just before dark. We were driving along the Arkansas and heard all that gunfire and commotion up ahead. And we got there just in time to see what few Indians were left running for their lives. They killed all but half a dozen of them. And they got that chief Little Hawk, too. 
You saw this, huh? Now, Marshal, we wouldn't be making it up, would we? And I might add that it's about time we saw something around here. You know, Sprig, I was talking to Doc Adams over there when you drove in. You know what he'd like to see? No. He'd like to see you and Bunker hung. What? And so would I. What's the matter with you, Marshal? Why did you tell me a soldier gave you that totem? Oh, you... you found out. Why did you lie about it? Because you were choking me and because I didn't know what you'd do next. Or why? Why? You men robbed a Pawnee grave. You stole a totem, a totem of Little Hawk's clan. That's all we took. Who cares about a savage idol anyway? Little Hawk did. He went on a warpath. Nonsense, Marshal. Over a fool thing like that? Marshal, you're not standing up for a bloodthirsty redskin, are you? I knew Little Hawk Sprig. He was a good chief. He was a brave man and a peaceful one. Till you shamed him. <laughs> well, he's he's not shamed now, Marshal. He's a good Indian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you get out, both of you. You get out today. Enough men have died because of you. And you go back to New York. And when you get there, you'll write a story about a marshal who'd have liked nothing better than handing you over to Little Hook. If he were still alive. things that gave Gunsmoke a lot of special color were the sound effects. Again, Norman MacDonald. It had always been a rule of thumb in radio that there should not be any dead air, that uh, people must keep talking. Well, we, we changed that, not because we deliberately set out to change it, but just because the people we were working with didn't talk all the time. So we had to fill it with sound patterns. We had three sound men for the most part, Bill James, Tom Hanley, Ray Kemper, who contributed more uh, to the show than anybody could ever imagine. For example, the boys on their own time realized that we were having trouble with live gunshots. So they on a Saturday went out with some equipment of their own and recorded shots on tape with a 45 and with a 38 and with a 32 and I think with a 22. These effects then could be played directly through the line so that it didn't flatten out and become just a, a dull pop on the air. So we had on a McKenzie machine, I think the boys called it in those days, we had Matt's um, gun and we always used a 45 for Matt and for the other heavies there would be a, a 38 or a 32. So they lynched you. They done it. Why, you dirty no, dogs! Wait! 
this is the kind of thing that the boys did in order to make the sound better and in order to make it work uh, more fully for the show. They also really work on the smallest possible details, like Matt getting up and walking to the stove to get a cup of coffee. The boys knew exactly how many steps it was from Matt's desk to the stove. Or they knew how many steps it was from the front of Matt's office to the jail cell. The one place that we cheated a little bit was on the walk from Matt's office down to the Long Branch. If we were running short on time, it was two steps across the boardwalk, five steps across the street, one step up on the other side, and then the doors. If we wanted to stretch a little bit, that walk sometimes became considerably longer. But the boys made the walk work because they used spurs for Matt. Whoever was walking with him would be without spurs, so you could differentiate between two people, Matt and Chester, for instance, walking down the street. They went into the whole bit of the squeak of the leather when Matt would mount a saddle. You could hear the stirrup leathers stretch and squeak. And we took time um, to play the sound patterns, which I think contributed in great part to the color and the, the feel of authenticity, if you will. Mr. Dillon? Mr. Dillon, come here, quick! Huh? Look. Yeah. Lynched. Scared me half to death. I seen him hanging there. It isn't a very pretty sight. There ain't no horse around. Where's his horse? Yeah, he probably stole it. And then they caught up with him and took it back. Who do you suppose done it? I don't know. I don't know how we're ever going to find out. Now, oh, come on. Let's cut him down. And get him into the ground. You know, when they did uh, horses' hoofs effects, for example, I can remember Bill would use one set of coconuts to depict our horses, which were shod, and they'd use another set of equipment if an Indian horse came up or something like that. And probably to the listener, there was no difference, but to them, there was a vast difference. And they would change background noises for one, from one saloon to another, and they were uh, punctilious enough that they they had a, a different set of street sounds for the day and for the night. These fellows were, were really dedicated to their jobs. Must have been easy for you, Doc. Really easy, Marshal. It was kind of fun. Fun? Killing that nice boy, fun. Oh, taking my time that way. doing? Give me my gun. You're not going to be needing a gun, Doc. Good man. God. God. He sure never expected that, did he? No gunman would, Kitty. But he's sure never going to forget it. I became a challenge, I think, to the two sound men that were assigned to the program then. Ray Kemper and Tom Hanley. Announcer George Walsh. And as I remember, it was around the 4th of July because they had a firecracker. And during the middle commercial of the dress rehearsal, they decided they were going to shoot off this firecracker. <laughs> well, 
Well, as anybody who's ever been on the air can understand, my only concern was not their firecracker. My only concern was how I could read that middle commercial and make it sound like I was at a regular pace, but I was really killing time so I'd have some time to play with when we got on the air. And they shot off the firecracker, and I just went right on. I think this may have impressed Norm MacDonald a little bit, because he was kind of surprised that it didn't stop me. But it really impressed those two sound men, because for the duration of the program, they tried every week to break me up at that middle commercial, during the rehearsal, of course. But they'd bring up uh, a table full of equipment for the program and a table and a half full of equipment to try to break up Walsh in <laughs> the middle commercial. We had some some high old times. It was funny. Howard McNear sometimes used to refer to Saturdays when we recorded them as Dirty Saturdays. Sometimes somebody would make an inflection in a line that would come out slightly spiked and colored. And from then on, no matter what you said, the most innocuous line became uh, really a dirty bunch of, of words when they were not intended so. But these guys would would spend hours working up a ribald sound effect or something of the sort, and then we would all beautifully collapse. One of the uh, nicest things uh, of the Saturday morning table reading was when Parley Bear would arrive with two enormous boxes of goodies from Benish's Bakery, which was a marvelous bakery. And... Uh, of course, everyone would always complain that Parley brought the wrong kind of torts or the wrong kind, which would drive Parley up the wall, and Howard McNair would laugh. And uh, But anyway, it was a pleasant way to start out, and uh, all of the members of the, uh, both the casual and the regular cast were such professionals that they could, they could kid as they worked without losing uh, emphasis. Georgia Ellis recalls a particular Saturday morning when supporting player Vic Perrin appeared wearing jeans that were held up with elastic. Perrin reportedly had a special interest in another casual player, Gene Bates, who happened to be working this particular program. He had sort of a kind of a secret crush on her. He was lusting through his script at her sidewise. <laughs> in a nice, sweet way, of course. But Vic was standing opposite Gene Bates. And he was so impressed with her, you see, it was kind of a calf-like thing. And she was playing a scene with him at this one microphone. <laughs> I walked up behind him and pulled down his pants. <laughs> the last thing, I just pulled him down and went back and sat at the table. <laughs> and there was Bill, you know, and Dana and everybody looking. I don't know what they thought of me. <laughs> no one looking out of the booth. <laughs> there stood Vic in his shorts. <laughs> and he kept on reading his script. <laughs> Actor was always... <laughs> Jean just raised hers a little bit higher. <laughs> what I had hoped to be complete utter confusion turned out to be nothing more than Vic turning purple, but at the same time acting away, reaching down with one hand and pulling up his pants. Well, you see, I didn't, I didn't see any part of this except 
Later on, Vic said to me over lunch at Nicodell's, well, for heaven's sake, you might at least check to see if I was wearing underwear. <laughs> Actor John Daner was a regular member of the Gunsmoke Stock Company, and he too looked forward to those Saturday rehearsals. Oh, they were the most happy, because for one thing, we all knew each other, and um, once the show was established, and uh, we were rather established as a, as a group, we worked so well together, we knew what the other's reactions were going to be, and we felt at ease personally with each other. For instance, we'd come to work in the morning, and uh, we wouldn't get down to the first reading for an hour. We'd be sitting around with uh, Danish and coffee, jabbering, having a marvelous time. And I mention that only because it is from this kind of intimate relationship with the other actors, the other people, let alone being actors on the show, allowed you a, a tremendous inner freedom, a relaxation, a feeling of comfort, that there was no tension at all. In those days, it was an absolute ball. We'd do two shows on Saturday. We'd do one in the morning, go to lunch, and it'd be one in the afternoon. And the total, we'd probably start at 11 and be through by 3.30 or 4 or something like that. And it was joyful. It really was. Everybody looked forward to coming to work. I wanted to ride out to Odie Richards' camp that night, but Obi insisted on staying in Dodge. I wanted to ride out to Obi Richards' uh, Excuse me, the reason I got screwed, because on this side I... I wanted to ride out to Odie Rich. Well, I'm a son of a bitch. Yes, you are. I wanted to ride out to Obie Richards. Ah! San Antonio. <laughs> well. <laughs> Joe I can't possibly do it. No. Okay. All right. Here we go. I got damn it. All right. Quiet, everybody. Jesus Christ, fellas. I wanted to ride out to Obi Ridger's camp that night, but Obi insisted on staying in Dodge. For years, Bill and I had a, a running gag where he'd say, hand me those handcuffs or hand me this, it's in the drawer. And I don't know what, what started it, really, but it became a running gag. As you'd have the sound effect of the drawer open, I'd say, here, well, there's my... I've been looking all over for that. How did that get there? Or would you hand me my jacket or hand me my gun out of the closet? And I'd say, yes, sir, here's your... Well, who put my... What? I don't know why people put my things in... What's that doing there? And after this had been going on for many, many years, Bill said to me one day, for nearly ten years, we've been playing this show, and you've been looking for something and found it. Now, for heaven's sake, what is it? And I said, it's right here in my pocket, and here it is, and you can have it. But so he gave something appropriately pithy, and it's coming, and we went. But I couldn't have told you what it was. It just seemed like a good gimmick at the time. And, and it used to annoy Bill through Dylan, the fact that I always referred to circulars as circlers. And I'd say, new batch of circlers come in, Mr. Dillon. I'd say, circlers? Yes, sure. How do you spell it? S-I-R-K-L-U-R-S. And he, he was just drone. I came bouncing into the office one day all excited because there was a stranger in town. And 
John wanted to know some particulars, and I said, well, he's some sort of Dutchman. He says, how do you know he's a Dutchman? So, well, he talks funny, and he comes from Europe or Asia or one of them towns. And Bill, who was easily broken up, said, Europe or Asia, one of them towns? Yes, sir, that's what he said. And then the, the wonderful quality there, Bill would never pursue it. He would, he would rise above Chester, and Chester talked to Doc into helping him make a garden. And when Doc wanted to know what he had planted, Chester didn't know. He had just found some seeds and had planted them whether they were going to come up flowers or vegetables or not. One of the best-running gags in the show is recalled by John Dater. The idea would be that Matt Dillon would be riding along uh, with Chester and uh, a little fellow of the town, a little guy who sort of always admired Matt, would just call out, Hello, Mr. Dillon. Matt would answer very soberly, hello, John, and off he'd ride. And this happened time after time after time. Out of out of the blue, along come this little character saying, hello, Mr. Dillon, or hello, Marshal Dillon. And that's all he said. And sometimes, I remember now, Matt would be out in the prairie somewhere, isolated, way hell and gone out somewhere. And out of the blue, I would walk up to the microphone and say, hello, Marshal Dillon. He'd just say, hello, John, and off we go. Pass it off as though, you know, it's the most ordinary thing in the world that this little guy should be out there among the Arapaho Indians. We were doing a show called The New Hotel sometime in... Well, I don't remember the date exactly. Let's say it was in 55. And it was one of those mornings where just everything was on a tilt. Conrad, at one point, uh, broke up so, so much that he... I thought he was really just through for the day following whatever Bill ad-libbed or whatever Larry Dobkin ad-libbed or whatever John Daner ad-libbed, the sound men would ad-lib sound underneath to go right with it. Uh, the story of the new hotel concerns a, a hotel being built which is later destroyed by a fire, and it's a very dramatic moment, and uh, the cue line comes up from Conrad and... The hotel is in flames in the background, and Rex Corey plays I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire, which, of course, broke up the cast completely for about five minutes. That's Enoch Mills' new hotel. Well, it will be when they get a bill, Chester. I never heard of a cattle rancher going into hotel business before, Mr. Jones. Well, Enoch Mills is a man of enterprise. Hmm. Look yonder at him. Why, well, he's as proud as a new father, ain't he? Well, it isn't every day a man builds a new hotel in touch, I always say. No. Hello, Mark. Chester. Oh, Mr. Mills. Yeah, it's going up pretty fast, isn't it? Oh, he's got most a month for it's finished, Marshal. Yeah. Uh, how many rooms are you going to have? Fifteen. Could have more, but this is going to be a class hotel. Not some hay tent like Jim Doby's Dodge House. <laughs> I'll bet he's jealous. Yeah. <laughs> Doby's had monopoly in this town long enough. <laughs> You're right about him being jealous, Jim. He's already done everything he can to keep me from building. Oh? Oh, what's he done? Well, he tried to buy up all the good lumber in town, for one thing. Good lumber in town. 
Thought he'd leave me with nothing but a lot of warmth and cottonwood. But I got on to him soon enough, and I'm building with the best, Marshal. All ash and hackberry. Uh, huh? Yeah, oh, John. Oh, hello, Marshal. He's scouting the enemy, I guess. Well, <laughs> leave him scout. He'll be out of business soon scouting enough. Scouting the enemy. <laughs> scouting the enemy, yeah. Yeah, looks like a town meeting we're about to have. How are you, Marshal? Chester, right, Mr. Dobie. Coming along fine, Dobie. Of course, it's only a little bitty hotel. Half the rooms, but twice the class, the Dodge House. You aren't getting my trade. Ah, oh, John. I've been in business too long. Oh, my God. What a figure. Who's your little friend, Dobie? You'll never beat me, eunuch. Oh, You're getting John. too old. Old? I'll eat the goose that fattens in your grave, Jim Doby. Yeah, not likely. Anyways, what do you know about the hotel business, Enoch? You won't last a month. Good question. Uh, now, look, you men. Dodge can use two hotels. There's plenty of trade here. Why don't you quit fighting each other? You're too scared of a little competition, Doby. You ain't slept a night since I started building. You got a ranch to run, Enoch. That's enough for one man. You shouldn't be pushing on other people's territory. Well, you ain't gonna stop me. I've tried to stop you, and I'll go on trying. All right, he's threatening me, Marshal. You heard him. I'm going to fight you, Enoch. I'm going to fight you all the way. So now, you'd better start staying up nights. Man belongs in jail, Marshal. Dobie's a hard one, Enoch. He'll give you a fight. But I don't think he'll do anything illegal. He won't, huh? Well, you wait and see. And it's going to be your fault for not stopping him now. The whole blame is going to be on your shoulders, Marshal. And I ain't going to let nobody forget it. Get that thing out of here. Well, this is the loneliest jailhouse I was ever in, Matt. Mm. You and Chester don't spend much time here, do you? Yeah, we'll be around more often if you drive in occasionally. <laughs> I haven't got a license. Oh, I see. Well, you never did have. Well, that's one reason I'm going to live so long. I came by to tell you something, Matt. Oh? Uh-huh. Yeah. Look out for this Christmas traffic. <laughs> don't tell me that's around again. Yep. I met a guy at the Long Branch this afternoon. He didn't say much, but a man like that stands out like a white buffalo. Ah, you can pick him, Kitty. Joel Shank's a gunman and a crook. He isn't wanted that I know of, but he sure ought to be. I didn't figure him for a drummer. Oh. Well, I think I'll let him stay around a few days. See what he's up to, a drummer? There are a couple of men with him, but it's hard to say if they're friends or if they just met. Oh, well, they're probably friends. Gil Shank never liked traveling alone much. Well, they didn't look like gunmen, Matt. They're just a couple of saddle bumps. Maybe I'm wrong, then. Well, thanks for telling me, though, Kitty. Mm. How's Enoch Mills' hotel coming? I haven't been by there lately. Oh, they got the frame up. Enoch says it'll be another month anyway. Huh? Jim Doby been letting him alone? Well, he keeps prodding him pretty hard. Enoch... I guess those two will never get together. Not the way they're gone. Something scary you, Chester? Oh, worse than that. Oh, what a new hotel's on fire. On fire? And old Enoch saying Jim Dobit. Oh, my knee's killing me. You better get down there, Mr. Don. <laughs>
those were happy, happy halcyon times. And uh, it's been close to 14 or 15 years since we did them. Some of those Saturday recording sessions seem as though they were just yesterday. <laughs> and I wish they were tomorrow. Within two years, Gunsmoke had become a smash hit. Favorable reviews from the critics came first. Then, in 1954, the program acquired its longtime sponsor, L&M Cigarettes. The series began to receive numerous awards. It was aired twice a week. There was a surprising amount of fan mail to answer. The program inspired several Western spin-offs, and there was even talk of transferring Gunsmoke to television. George Walsh begins the story. The sponsor I remembered best, probably because I had more to do with it over a long period of time, was Liggett and Myers Tobacco Company. In those days, it was permissible to advertise cigarettes on the air. And I did the uh, L&M commercials, and uh, George Fenneman did the uh, Chesterfield commercials. This uh, <laughs> this brings to mind uh, the day that we were in the middle of a rehearsal. One of the agency men representing Liggett Myers Tobacco and L&M and or Chesterfield cigarettes was in the control room. And out on the prairie, all of a sudden, Marshall Lillen and Chester were riding along, and how a pistol shot came out of nowhere, and they hit the dirt and crawled down behind a clump of range grass, and Chester turned to the marshal and said, Golly, Mr. Dillon, it's lucky he didn't have a rifle. Cut, yelled the agency man. We can't have that word lucky in there. <laughs> and everything came to a halt until there was a great deal of uh, uh, editorial judgment. Finally, it did turn out into the... Uh, into the script as lucky, but uh, because Norm MacDonald, I remember him standing there drawing himself up to his full Scottish six-foot-two at the time and saying to this man, do you mean to tell me that I am to have Chester Proudfoot say to Marshall Dillon, it is extremely fortunate that he didn't have a rifle? So lucky stayed in the script. But this was the type of thing that I, I never have understood the, the advertising agency business. Uh, I've been exposed to it, and I use the word advisedly, uh, I, I've been close to it from my standpoint, my side of the business, but I've never understood the, the aura of, uh, of fear and uh, wonderment that, that surrounds this business. I remember once that uh, the small agency that Cunningham and Walsh had on the West Coast now, my name is, my real legitimate name is Walsh, and I am no relation whatever to the Walsh of Cunningham and Walsh, a very big, successful advertising agency. But uh, one time during the course of uh, uh, commercials that we were recording, aside from the program, we were wild-tracking the commercials, one of the representatives of the West Coast Agency uh, was having a difficult time. It just seemed that I couldn't do anything to please him. No matter how I did this L&M commercial, it just wasn't right. He didn't like anything about it. He didn't like the speed. He didn't like the pacing. He didn't like my accents. He didn't like anything about it. And after the tension began to build, and I had done many attempts at it, I had a moment of I thought was jest. I leaned back to the microphone and said, well, if that's the way you want it, okay, but I'm not sure that Uncle Fred would like it that way. Now, I had learned shortly before that Fred Walsh was a real character who in those days was an old man but still used to terrify everybody at the headquarters back in New York. So I just threw this in facetiously. But the man in the control room didn't take it that way. He thought, good Lord, this guy might really be related to the old man. 
From that day on, I could do nothing wrong for that man. And as long as I knew him, there was always this aura of doubt, mixed with fear, that he might be related to the old man in New York. I, I wasn't, but I cherish this memory because I'm bad when it comes to a put-on. But this was one time I think I got away with it. Over the ten years that Gunsmoke was on the air, we were fortunate to win a number of awards. For instance, the uh, radio-television Mirror Daily Awards. Uh, we won one for Best Radio Drama or Best Radio Western in 54 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, and I believe in 9, but I'm not sure about that. One of the things, and I, I, I always hesitate to say this, but I, I think it should be known, that perhaps the most deserving award, which was never passed out, was the one that should have gone to John Meston, who wrote hundreds of these scripts, and to the best of my knowledge, received no specific award for it, which I think is, is, is rather a tragedy and an, and an oversight. There were times that John came in for his... Uh, good notices, for instance, in a Jack Gould column in the Times, late 52 or early 53, Jack Gould gave us really quite a rave review and I think was largely responsible for the show continuing on and indeed picking up commercial sponsorship. The Gunsmoke name appears in a lot of odd places. As a matter of fact, it's in the Congressional Record uh, a rather amusing thing when someone was saying that Matt Dillon would never have done that and then he was reminded that Matt Dillon never really existed and uh, he said no but he was so real it seemed as though he really existed at this time it is with great pride that Gunsmoke is able to bring you a specially recorded message by the honorable Edward F. Arne governor of the state of Kansas ladies and gentlemen governor Arne it's a real pleasure for me on behalf of Kansans everywhere to congratulate the CBS radio network, the writers, producers, directors, actors, and technicians on the splendid job you are doing with Gunsmoke. Here is real adult western drama without the usual horse opera cliches portraying an era and community of Kansas that graphically marked the formative years of our great state. Let me point out, however, the Dodge City of today is a far cry from the Dodge City so vividly brought to life in Gunsmoke. From those early pioneer and frontier days, Dodge City has developed into one of the fine cities of our state, industrially, agriculturally, and historically. The folks of Dodge City, and indeed all the people of this great sunflower state, thank you for a good job well done. Thank you, Governor Arne. It was released twice a week. It would be released first on a Sunday night and then re-released the following Saturday morning. We had a tremendous audience. As I recall, I think we were something like, uh, because of the double show, we had an audience of something like 50 million <laughs> people every week, which was fantastic. You know. Gunsmoke got its share of fan mail, no more nor less than other shows that were... Um, on the air at that time. Uh, we tried to answer our fan mail. We had special letterheads printed up in period style saying, Office of the Marshal, 1871, Dodge City, Kansas. And at the bottom it said, 
for Marshall Dillon by, and then I would sign my name, and uh, everybody was satisfied. We tried to answer it all, and I think I think that's good public relations. Chester got fan mail. Uh, that generally showed some irritation at wanting to know why he had behaved like that or why hadn't he used a little sense, you know. People were always wanting to do Chester over, which was kind of remarkable. They, they, the letters that came were advising me to sh shape up or ship out. <laughs> that that uh, Bill got a lot of letters uh, for his, uh, the magnificence of his portrayal. I never got any unfriendly letters, but uh, you got the feeling that some of these people would shake me good if they got a chance. There was one letter that I can still remember addressed to John Mesta and came from Texas from a fan named Effie. And she had some particular ideas about what should be done next. And, and uh, we'll let John tell you this. Well, this is a letter, a fan letter I got. The only one I ever got. From Rogers, Texas, September 1953. It was addressed to me. And inside, there's no date or anything. It's from a woman called Effie. And I won't use her last name. It's an ordinary name. The letter reads very simply. Oh, John, you have to come home. Stick your toes to this fire. I've just been wondering about you in this cold. Ma, am I hungry? I want supper. Been down in the timber rolling them logs. How about the kids? Done fed them, baked their toes, put them to bed. Have to milk them cows. Seen them hens laid. Feed that old mule. Well, I guess that all. Oh, my back. What's wrong with you, John? Thinking about that hard day tomorrow, honey? Honey, you got to work to make them kids something to eat. Oh, my back, got to see a doctor, get some pills. Oh, John, you just got nerves. You will be all right. Them children can't eat rabbits to live. Signed, Effie. <laughs> My favorite fan, whoever she is. <laughs> Great. Lovely lady. Five or six years after we had been on the air, I am I have parked my car and I'm walking across the parking lot to go into CBS to do another set of two. And a guy walks up to me and he says, Mr. Conrad? And I said, Yes. He said, uh, Boy, I just think that you're fantastic. It's a great show, Gunsmoke, and the way you play Matt Dillon is just absolutely super, and I just I think you're great. Would you do me a great favor? And I said, well, sure, if I can, certainly. He said, would you do the opening for me? And I looked at him, and I said, uh, the, the what? He said, the opening. And I said, well, I, I'm sorry, I, I really don't know what you mean. And he said, the, the opening, the gun smoke, the thing you say every Saturday or Sunday night when you open the show. I said, uh, uh, gee, are you, are you not thinking of another show maybe? Because I, I really don't remember. 
And he said, oh, okay, fine. You big star, huh? Well, fine. Thank you very much for being so courteous to me. And he turns furious and walks away from me. And I still didn't know what it was. And I walked into the rehearsal and I said, hey, the funniest thing happened to me. And I related the story. And they said, oh, God, it's the opening. I said, what opening? They said, you recorded it seven years ago and you haven't done it since. When Gunsmoke went on the air in uh, April of 52, it was really the only one of its kind. Uh, in the years that followed, I think there were a good many imitators, uh, some very successful and some just poor imitations. Shows not only went from radio to television, but a couple of shows came from television to radio. For example, Have Gun Will Travel, which was uh, on adjacent to the television program of Gunsmoke, became a radio program after the fact, several years later, and was quite successful. John Daner played the lead. He played Paladin, the part that uh, Dick Boone originated. We never really went into depth about Paladin, except that he sort of came out of uh, nowhere. He was the Robin Hood. He was the uh, man who could do no wrong. He righted all evils and um, protected the poor from the depredations of the wealthy and so forth. He was a rather one-dimensional character, if you want my honest opinion about Paladin. And even on the um, television show, it was uh, it had that uh, aspect to it, unlike Gunsmoke, where the, the characters seemed to be more real. There was fantasy in Paladin, you see. But uh, that didn't uh, take away from the fact that it was a, a lot of fun to do. Then there were, uh, there were other shows that were in this general area of Western or period. One of them that I was connected with was Fort Laramie, starring Raymond Burr. It was a cavalry show, again, 1870 or 1875, in Wyoming, and a, a successful one. Uh, John Daner starred in another radio show called uh, Frontier Gentleman. That was the brainchild of uh, Tommy Ellis. He was a writer. He wrote a lot of escapes and, and romances, and um, he, he just got the idea that there should be a, a civilized individual showing up in the West and the adventures that uh, befall him, thinking mainly of the uh, English remittance man. Uh, who was sent over to this country by his family in England because they don't quite know what to do with him, but he's better off out of sight. Sure, they'll send him his uh, monthly stipend to keep him going, but as long as he doesn't bother them, that's what they're after. So he shows up in the United States and goes west. And this was, by the way, quite common in the West in those days, you know. The remittance man idea was, was uh, quite worldwide, where the English would send their men off to the colonies, their unwanted scions. But the English man was a a great force in the development of the West. And uh, Frontier Gentleman was based more or less upon that idea. The radio show had been on the air about a year when it became apparent it was, it was a fairly solid operation. It also was apparent in those days the television was looming large. So Meston and I uh, talked to the radio executives about was there a way to move it to television and... Uh, Indeed, they'd already been thinking about this, and it was a, it was in the works. So Meston and I were convinced that we'd be producing and writing the television series, which, as it turned out, uh, we were not, which was probably a very good thing. They hired a novelist and a motion picture producer-director named Charles Marquis Warren to come in and 
get the television uh, series organized, and I was allowed to come in as a as an associate producer, which I must admit I was very pleased to do. Then came the matter of, uh, of course, the cast, once that had been determined to go ahead with the television version. And it seemed obvious to me that it should be Bill Conrad, Howard McNair, Parley Bear, and Georgia Ellis, because they'd created the parts, and they were indeed Matt and Doc and Kitty and Chester. But uh, I didn't know enough to know that it didn't always work that smoothly. The determination was made to uh, test several people for these several parts, and it looked for a while as though the Gunsmoke radio cast wasn't even going to be considered or tested. There was a Los Angeles newspaper man named Hal Humphreys who was a great fan of the radio show and a great fan of the people and the actors. And he petitioned and lobbied in his Los Angeles Times column day after day, uh, and I think was largely responsible in securing for the radio cast an audition. We taped in Studio 43, I think it was, at uh, TV City. It was all right. Uh, it wasn't staggering. It was all right. But I don't think anybody upstairs even saw it because it was purely a, a token audition so that uh, the radio people would keep on working in radio, and uh, which they did for another seven years. It was determined to go with... Uh, Jim Arness, who was a protege of Duke Wayne's and uh, a good actor, although a newcomer, and Dennis Weaver and uh, Amanda Blake and Melbourne Stone, all good, solid actors. Bill Warren really should get a tremendous amount of credit for transcribing or transferring the shows from radio to television. I think he was able to keep in his production and direction of the first script, which was a Meston television script, and being able to keep the feel and the intent of what the uh, radio show had been. It was Bill who wardrobed uh, the principals, and for many years they were the only well-wardrobed westerns uh, on the air. Bill was responsible for the kind of photography and the kind of uh, sets. Uh, I was able to be of considerable help, I hope, by being able to describe how we had pictured the sets and uh, how we had pictured the Long Branch and the street and where the jail cells were and all the other things that we'd worked with in radio. When the transition was made to television, uh, the first any of us in radio knew about it was when we read it in the trade papers. We were a little disgruntled that we hadn't been uh, considered right for the parts, it, it's a little uh, nonplussing to be told that you're not right for something that you had created. But that happens all the time. The character transferred to television was generally faithful, except in the case of Chester, played on radio by Parley Bear. CBS officials started by changing Chester's last name from Proudfoot to Good. And when they made the transition, I was told that one of the officials with CBS said uh, he'd better change his name because Parley might have... Uh, cause to for plagiarism suit. And I saw this man in the lobby of the station one day and I said, I trust CBS even though CBS doesn't apparently trust me. And I said, and I have less cause to trust CBS and CBS has to trust me. And uh, that is, I got the story that they changed his name because they were afraid I would... Uh, 
picked up a fuss. What I should really have kicked up a fuss about, as well as Bill and Howard and everybody else, is for the first uh, 156 shows, they used radio scripts for the television thing almost in total. And uh, it was a little irritating to hear lines that you had written, hear your own ad libs incorporated into the television series. But uh, why, why joust with windmills, you know? We didn't get it, and, and those fellows did a, a, a good job. I think uh, Jim Arnes as uh, Dylan became sort of a pillar on the national scene, and I'm not taking away from him uh, his, anything that he did in his performance or in, in painting the character because he had 20 years of great success. But my opinion is this. I do think Bill would have been better. Dennis Weaver's television portrayal of Chester was different, too. Dennis played him as a younger man, and... Uh, I always considered uh, Chester sort of ageless. Uh, if, if somebody had said to me, how old is Chester, as you claim, I'd honestly say, I don't know. He could have been anywhere from 30 to 50. Chester was certainly no romancer. He was embarrassed by uh, ladies, and uh, he had his moments. They never quite came to fruition, even with Kitty to Chester, it was always Miss Kitty. He was unusual for those times. It was quick to rise when a lady uh, came in, and uh, he had little or no contact with uh, women in those days. They, they didn't marry the likes of Chester because he was uh, he was sort of on the outside looking in. And uh, of course, there was always a scarcity of women in Dodge City and those cow towns along Hill, and the the marriageable ones were already married or the ones who had a future for marriage were very zealously guarded and they were always looking for someone with more money to come along than Chester had. But uh, we played him differently. Someone said, did Chester limp on radio? And I said, no. Now, how true this story is, I don't know. I've heard it repeated many times that uh, Chester was given a limp on his character for TV because he was coming on pretty strong as uh, a romantic uh, figure, and they felt that if Dennis played him, Dennis is a very handsome man, they felt he was overshadowing the character of uh, Dylan, and so they gave him some physical handicap. I don't think it was necessary, but uh, again, who am I to fight with success? Dennis was very successful as, as Chester for a great many years. The television show was uh, bought quickly from the pilot film that Bill Warren made and uh, went on the air in September of 55 and was almost immediately well received. Uh, part of this, of course, was that there had been three years of pre-publicity because the Gunsmoke radio show had been enormously well received in those three years prior, so it was a, it was a happy wedding. Bill produced and directed the first 26 shows, and I think a combination of fatigue and pressure and, uh, well, just the, the weight of carrying that big a job all by himself made it difficult to continue, and he left after 26 weeks to do a feature. When Bill left, I was able and lucky enough to uh, slip into the mantle of producer of the series, not attempting to direct any. So I stayed with the show as producer from the 27th show through the next nine years, and uh, left the series in uh, 1964. 
We'll return to the biography of Gunsmoke in just one moment. <laughs> 